What half the year 2021 brought upon the all-weather portfolio at Cinesera Capital? And what could 2022 bring? Kevin Kalaki and Adam Packer review the old and preview the new as they talk about the impact of inflation, the Fed, crypto, and the continued resilience of the all-weather portfolio. Well, Adam, here we are, the end of 2021. It's been another interesting year, and I thought we would spend our time today, most of it just recapping what we were seeing heading into 2021, how the All Weather Core portfolio has done over that time period. And then maybe this is a, a little bit of a leading statement, but saying how we see it's still a great place to be. And for all of the reasons we construct it the way we do, it is still a great place to be, if that makes sense. So thanks for joining, Adam. And let's just jump into it. Let's let's walk right into the all-weather portfolio. A lot of people asked us as, as we headed into the end of the year or as things shifted during the year, what changes are you going to make in the portfolio and, and how did it perform? So I'll go ahead and let you take over, start maybe ahead of that question, and, and we'll answer that question as we go through a discussion today. Yeah, I think what was interesting for us is going into this year, going into 2021, we, we had this similar conversation you know, looking at 2020, the all-weather risk parity portfolio did really well. Annualized net of fee performance was about 15.7% in 2020. And since we launched that strategy in October 2019, we annualized just under 8.5%. When you look at the back-tested results we've done on our model, which can run all the way back until February 2007, portfolio has a hypothetical compound annual growth rate of just roughly 7% net of fees. So looking at how we did in 2020 with that 15% return, we came into 2021 expecting at least a reversion to the mean, maybe a low single digit return. Certainly in Q1, it looked like that's where we were trending. As you remember, I think a lot of people like to point to our treasury exposure as usual. When, when interest rates are low, they like to point to treasuries and say, why are you on treasuries? And in Q1, treasuries didn't do very well. But very quickly, starting straight almost immediately in Q2, Treasuries turned around, had a great April. And then fast forward to September when the market was down, all weather held up really well because of that diversification benefit thanks to that Treasury exposure. And now looking at our year-to-date results, which for our listeners out there is as of December 29th, the all-weather portfolio is up 6.6%. Very much so. And uh, I think going back to... The, the whole reason that we implemented this portfolio structure across the portfolios goes back to the statement we made in one of our very first, actually, I think our very first blog post, uh, which I wrote the forward to, and you authored the, the remainder of the post. And uh, the statement that we, we put in place was preparation beats reaction. Right. And it's very, very difficult as we see to try to react and produce a healthy and justifiable risk-adjusted return, <laughs> if that makes sense. And yeah. uh, that's really what the all-weather structure does. And again, in a year where we perhaps were anticipating a lower than usual return on the portfolio because we maintained course, because we stayed with our exposures and balanced our risks, we ended up producing what we would expect to be a normal year uh, right. on average inside the portfolio. I would say looking at, at the portfolio as a whole, I, you brought up the fact that we get a lot of questions about the treasury exposure. And I always like to 
when, when talking with individuals who are inquiring about the portfolio structure and the treasury piece is just to remind them that that piece is right now is constructed of treasury positions. But at some point in time, if we have another asset that shows up that produces the same type of long-term negative correlation to, to the equity markets, then it can become potentially a component of that part of the portfolio. And so we obviously get a lot of questions. Well, what is that? Right now, it's nothing. We've, we've done a lot of research on assets that could potentially play that role. And there's nothing as strong and as consistent from a correlation standpoint as US treasuries are in, in that space. Yeah. What I do think you, that, that's oh, uh, key is, is that you said the correlation and you know, the diversification to create a truly diversified portfolio, you have to pay attention to correlation. And right now, and historically, when you, you look at those long-term periods of, of treasuries versus equities, we, we can backtest that all the way back to the 1920s, looking at that rolling 10-year correlation of equities to treasuries. And with that robust data set, treasuries are the best diversifier because of that low, often negative correlation to equities. And so for us, whether it's a period where treasuries are low yielding or whether interest rates are higher, that correlation, that diversification benefit has, has been there. And the alternative asset classes, and, and when you're looking at f- fixed income, you look at corporate bonds, which kind of straddles for us the fixed income premium and also the equity premium because corporate bonds have underneath the hood exposure to corporate risk. And so there's mm-hmm. that equity risk embedded in corporate bonds. And on the other side, you can look at TIPS, which Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, that kind of straddles the other end of interest rate exposure and inflation hedging exposure. And so for us, we prefer to keep those three buckets that are um, standard in an all-weather risk parity portfolio as pure and separate as possible. Yeah. And that I think it's very difficult right now from a management perspective on the portfolio to to stare at the tips, the, the treasury yeah. inflation protected securities and, and not be enticed to say, ooh, you know, yeah. Here's where we stand. We have announced now from the Fed that interest rates are planning to rise this year. Would it be a good time to move into those? And I think the reality is that it's already priced in. If we were to move into them now or again, try to react instead of prepare, then you've already lost the benefit of moving into that asset class. With that said, I would say you and I get so many times, in fact, we just feel that this question is what what are we going to do about interest rates or how do rising interest rates impact the all-weather core portfolio or, or all of our all-weather portfolios, you know, the all-weather core and growth? And um, are we staring at another 70s, 1970s, 1980s type environment where we are really potentially going to be leaning on the inflationary portion of the all-weather core portfolio? Yeah. And I think those questions all revolve around the same issue, which is trying to time the market mm-hmm. and you know, looking at treasuries and saying, okay, yields are really low. They can only go up from here. Why do you own treasuries? Inflation has gone up substantially year over year. And we can talk about that, whether it being transitory or permanent and, and all the connotations of that. But the recent question that we had was, okay, should I own tips instead of treasuries? And that kind of, as I alluded to earlier, kind of 
blends the two different buckets of inflation and hedging assets and, and treasuries. And I think for us, it's also interesting to point a lot of people were pointing to tips as something to own. And interestingly enough, when I was putting together the numbers and looking at our portfolio and comparing our inflation hedging assets versus other inflation hedging alternatives and tips being kind of number one topic that our clients are wondering why we don't own, tips are actually up only about 5% this year. So with all the inflation going on, tips didn't weren't the best performing inflation hedging asset. And so for us, we, we did fairly well with the type of assets that we chose. Obviously, gold is, is one of those components of our inflation hedging bucket. Didn't necessarily have the greatest year. It was down about, uh, as of, of today, it was down about 5%, I think, uh, year to date. But you also have to then go back and look at 2020, where gold was up 25%. So you, you're kind of a give and take for us. But when you look at the components of that inflation hedging asset class of our all-weather portfolio, on a weighted average basis, that bucket has a two-year annualized return of 12%, which is outperforming tips by nearly 1,000 basis points. It's also outperforming the broad-based commodity index, the S&P GSCI, which has a two-year annualized return of only 3.69%. Also, interestingly enough, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit about commodities being the other inflation mm-hmm. hedging component and why we own energy stocks and global material stocks versus commodity futures. When you look at how commodities did this year, they did very well. They were up 39%. But when you combine how they did in 2020, commodity futures were, were actually the, the S&P GSCI is the index we used. That index was down 24% in 2020. So when you combine those two years, we were up weighted average 17% for an inflation hedging and we outperformed the GSCI by about 10, 10 percentage points. So significantly outperforming when you look at that full cycle of what happened in 2020 and what happened in 2021. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there with the energy stocks, you know, the energy equity positions, the global materials positions. We did a substantial amount of work on that as we right. developed the portfolio early on because we had considered holding a kind of K1 free commodity ETF in a position there. But ultimately the research led us into a better understanding of where we're capturing risk premiums in the market and really understanding that in the commodity, there's no long-term risk premium associated with owning commodities. So if you want to use commodities as an inflation hedge, you also have to have some sort of crystal ball to be able to forecast exactly. the movement of the markets. Uh, whereas by owning the equity positions, we're actually picking up the long-term equity risk premium along with the what I call the early input inflation risk premium. So to sum it up, I always say, you know, when we're looking at actual economic inflation, which is what has driven these price inflation, is that we want to own the very, very front end of that supply chain curve. So we want to own, we want to invest in the raw materials that are building goods and invest in the energy that are moving those goods and materials around the world. And that those are things that you cannot forecast, that they only show up after they've occurred. To some extent, you can see those reflected in PMIs, purchasing manager indices, but they don't really show up even till after the fact there. So there's really no leading indicators there. So again, owning those is an an integral part of that part of the portfolio. I know a lot of people ask about gold too, but before I shift away from that, do you have anything else to add there? Yeah. I just want to also highlight when looking at owning a kind of broad-based 
commodity exposure via commodity futures, you have to understand that all commodities are not created equal. How agriculture futures, you know, like wheat, uh, perform in an inflationary environment is very different than how industrial metals perform, how pre- precious metals perform, how oil performs. And so when you're pursuing that broad-based pass- passive approach, it's really hard to, as you alluded to, generate that alpha because research has shown a buy and hold approach to commodity futures over the long term doesn't really generate an attractive return. So you have to pursue an active management strategy, which as, as we've mentioned many, many times before, it's very hard to generate alpha via active management. You know, active managers tend to underperform their benchmarks. So for us, it didn't make sense to pursue that broad-based commodity futures approach. The other thing I, I, I want to point out, and I think there was a recent research that we read that kind of supported our approach to investing in energy stocks and material stocks, but they countered saying it's too volatile. It doesn't make sense because it's just that the risk reward isn't there. But for us, we're not owning energy stocks and materials on a standalone basis. We're owning it as a component to an inflation hedging sub-portfolio, which is a component of the broader all-weather risk parity portfolio. And when you combine that, and, and as we mentioned before, correlation is key. So yes, on a standalone basis, oil stocks and material stocks are more volatile than tips or commodity futures. But from a portfolio construction standpoint, it, for, it makes more sense to, to us. Certainly. I think that goes into the seeing the forest for the trees uh, right. piece yeah. of Ed Shen's book that he wrote on risk parity structure as a whole. And uh, always trying to remember that the portfolio, it does work as a whole. It doesn't work yes. as in, if you break out each part in and of itself. And again, as we'd said in a number of different conversations with families that we serve, is it actually allows our families to put less money into the public markets and then concentrate some of their additional capital in the private markets because they're able to produce the same level of comfort from a security standpoint. And that's really where for us that alpha generation comes from is when you're investing in um, private equity, venture capital, real estate, our clients tend to be heavily exposed to that. And so it helps them from a diversification standpoint to invest with us via the core all-weather portfolio. And that balances their kind of risk exposure. For sure. Now let's talk about the what seems to be the elephant in the room these days, which is inflation. You know, we talked a little bit about it early on how we construct that inflation hedge. And you know, when we had you had written about this last last year in the blog post, and then again this year, the, the first blog post you wrote about was it was inflation. It was the the imperfect hedge. And we had already yeah. talked about that today. So I don't want to jump back into that one. But the great piece you wrote on May 21st of this year was inflation by any other name. And I think this went directly into tackling is inflation transitory or is it not, which I think is a loaded question in and of itself because define transitory, you know, is transitory six months, is transitory four years. I mean, what it, when you're investing in portfolios that, that are designed to carry family wealth into perpetuity, then let's have a different discussion. So let's just jump back into this blog, inflation by other any other name. What a wonderful name for a blog, first of all. But, you know, really jumping in here and tackling the crux of this is do you believe, Adam, Chief Investment Officer, is it is it 
transitory or, or are we going to see a more lingering f- effect here? And, and has your view changed since you wrote this piece? My view hasn't changed. And, and that's because my view is it doesn't matter. Certainly from a real world impact, from a personal spending perspective, it does matter for our clients when things become more expect- expensive, that has a real world impact. But from an investment perspective, and that's, that's kind of where I come in, where we come in is clients want to know how does inflation impact their investment portfolio? Does it matter if it's transitory? Does it matter if it's not? The all weather is designed to perform in both environments, whether inflation is transitory or whether it's not transitory, whether it's, it's more long-term sustainable trend. But what's also important to understand is inflation hedging from an investment perspective is really designed to capitalize on unexpected inflation. And so for us, it's not so much a matter of transitory or not transitory, it's whether it's expected or unexpected inflation. And I think that translates into looking at real yields. And we talked Mm -hmm. a little bit about that with gold. Gold is a really good hedge historically when real yields are declining. So what does that mean? That means real yields are essentially interest rates minus inflation. So when real yields are going down, gold tends to go up. And what we saw this year in particular, real yields didn't really move that much. If you look at where they started in the beginning of the year, they're pretty much back to where they started. So from that perspective, the the other component of what makes gold a good hedge is currency devaluation. And Mm -hmm. that's also tied to real yields. But because real yields didn't really move that much, uh, the US dollar movement actually had more impact than gold. And if you look at the charts, the, the US dollar index was actually up about three and a half, four percent this year, which corresponds to why gold, I think, was was partially down this year is because the dollar strengthened. So going back to inflation, whether it's transitory or not, you know, having the underlying components that we have in all weather, my my short answer is it it doesn't matter. And I know clients don't necessarily like to hear that, but when they see the efficacy of the portfolio get tested over a period like this, when all the headlines were talking about transitory inflation, they, they can see that different components performed better depending on where the market was leaning towards, whether it was transitory or whether it was not, whether there was an inflationary surprise, that unexpected inflation, that's when we saw gold and the other inflation hedging assets do really well when you had those CPI or um, PCE readings come out and they surprise to the upside. And then you, you look at those days and gold did well and those energy stocks and global material stocks did well. So we don't like to look at the day-to-day performance, but for us, it's, it's important to just you know, keep our uh, eyes on the daily movements because when they don't perform as expected, that's when we have those conversations say, okay, what happened today? What happened this week or you know, this month or this quarter? And understand are the trends changing? Are these not as effective as they used to be? And I think so far, the answer has been they're performing exactly as we expected them to. Very much so. And I would say, as we're checking on the health of the portfolio, we, we tend to use you know, Ed Chen's guidelines. It, was it a positive, positive, positive day? Or was it a yeah. positive, positive, negative day? Or was it a all the different 
variations of that you can receive. And when you see a portfolio and why you and I had looked at this and thought that maybe here in 2021, we'd be looking at a less than normal return is that we had seen two years in the portfolio of, of a triple P. So positive, positive, positive on all three risk factors. And mm-hmm. not to say that there's any type of superstition that goes into it, but at some time you always think that there's a corrective action that, that happens in the portfolio. And I think what I, I've realized, and, and I think we both realized is the portfolio, because it's structured the way it is, it's almost self-healing. And so sometimes the corrections happen over a course of a day or a course of a week, but generally over a longer time frame, because the risks are balanced, they tend to all come back into alignment. And yeah. we do very little rebalancing in the portfolio. In fact, we, we probably do more rebalancing in conjunction with tax loss harvesting than we do anything else in the portfolio because of that self-healing nature in the portfolio. And I think that really speaks to, again, just another you know, data point, if, if only qualitative and maybe even somewhat quantitative, we can certainly quantify that looking at the portfolio to say, okay, we like where the portfolio is. The health check of the portfolio is good because right now we have two things positive and one thing negative. I, I think always being truly diversified, you're always going to have something to explain. So, yeah. and, and maybe it's, appropriate for the season, but I like to call it the Christmas tree strategy. If I'm looking at our portfolio and I see some underlying investments in green, meaning they're up and some that are in red, they're down. That means the portfolio is essentially working because we're investing in negatively correlated assets. So a negative, negatively correlated asset means when one asset is up, the other's down in general. And so certainly we like to see those, as you mentioned, the triple P days when everything's in green, but more often than not, you're going to see that Christmas tree where if equities are up, treasuries are going to be down. And importantly for us, when equities are down, treasuries are up. The opposite side is that it's triple negative event, the triple N. And fortunately, and, and the research has, has proven this out, is those triple negative days or periods are very rare. And when they do occur, they usually revert back to the the normal trend pretty quickly. And, and usually those triple ends are, 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 at least in recent history, have been tied to the Fed and being very aggressive with their monetary policy. And, and that's translated into financial asset inflation. So inflation, inflation with respect to investment assets. So started with the, the Great Recession. You started hearing those famous two words, quantitative easing, you know, QE. QE1 became QE2, became QE3, became QE, I think at one point some headlines were QE infinity. And then fast forward to what happened last year, another round of quantitative easing. And that's mostly been felt on Wall Street, not necessarily on Main Street, but the impact of the financial asset inflation. When you get that reversion, when, when you see the Fed kind of pump the brakes a little bit, that's when you see those triple end days because when, when they're, you know, embarking and quantitative easing stocks do well and treasuries do well, because that is fundamentally what what quantitative easing is, is the Fed's buying treasury bonds. So Mm -hmm. you see both those assets do really well. And so when you see the Fed do the opposite and pull pull back on quantitative easing, stocks and bonds go down. But historically, those periods have been very short. And as I mentioned already, that they tend to revert back to the normal trend of, of risk parity. Yeah. And I think too, also, whenever we see those days when there's an announcement from the Fed on monetary policy of some some type, 
mm-hmm. that by the next day it starts to clean itself up. It's yeah. amazing how quickly it it's amazing how quickly it happens on that side. So I know we're starting to butt up against half hour here, but I didn't want to end our conversation today without talking about the other question that we received almost as often as we hear about interest rates and inflation. And that is uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchains, NFTs. You wrote about this um, this year about NFTs and how they they could potentially be something interesting in the future, given the nature of them. But also, I think the question that that I get in a lot of the research that you and I have done too is, are, are cryptocurrencies going to become potentially a longer term piece of you know, one of the buckets of the all-weather portfolio. And uh, I'll go ahead and say, from my standpoint, at least right now, the answer is no. We don't have enough data. We don't have enough confidence. And certainly the the volatility, people say that the um, energy stocks and the material stocks are volatile. You should see the volatility of Bitcoin. Even if you're just looking at the, the Bitcoin trust ETF, I mean, it's it's monstrous. And so because of that, A, you can't put too much in the portfolio, but B, it's it's not showing any type of long-term, hadn't been around long enough really, but it's also not showing any type of long-term negative correlation. Some days it's negatively correlated, some days it's positively correlated to the stock market and the swings are, are pretty wild at this point. So that's my initial take on, are we going to have cryptos in the portfolio soon? The answer is no right now. It doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't own them in an aspirational portfolio, but I think inside of the all-weather portfolio, I don't think they have a part to play. All right, Adam, and blockchain, you and I talked about blockchain quite a bit and how it really is the underlying technology that's going to transform many different things from insurance underwriting to ownership structures and verification. You know, right now, I think from a cryptocurrency standpoint, maybe it's still a little too slow on verification for cash payments, but I know there's a lot of very smart people and a lot of hot dollars chasing the ability to use blockchain for cash transactions. And then lastly, NFTs. I don't feel that I have enough knowledge yet to speak on the subject, but certainly I, I believe you do. You wrote on this uh, this year in the blog. So I'll back up, let you start at cryptos, go through blockchain, NFTs, and we'll go ahead and wrap it up today. Yeah. I think with respect to cryptocurrencies, within the, the construct of a portfolio, it, I, I agree with you. It doesn't quite make sense for us. A lot of people like to point to Bitcoin's ability or supposed ability as an inflation hedging asset. And, and one, as you mentioned, the, the history is very limited. And two, that history is also very mixed. The record of Bitcoin as an inflation hedging asset is it's not solid one way or another. So the jury's still out on whether Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency can be an alternative to, to gold, which is you know another interesting asset, but also has 5,000 years of history that support it as a store of value. So another reason why we like gold over something like Bitcoin. But with respect to blockchain, blockchain te- technology in general, I agree with you. I think the opportunity lies there and we have seen a lot of very interesting deals in the private market space, you know, whether it be private equity or venture capital. I think there are a lot of very interesting early stage tech companies that are using uh, blockchain to disrupt different verticals, as you mentioned, fintech being one of them. And then the final piece, and I wrote about this one, is, is NFTs, which for the listeners that don't know, NFT stands for non-fungible tokens. So they're a little different than cryptocurrencies. A non-fungible 
token or a non-fungible asset is essentially an asset that can't be substituted or exchanged. So in, in contrast, a fungible asset is something like a dollar bill. A dollar bill is fungible because you can replace it with four quarters. In a non-fungible token, you can, there's no such substitution that you can do with that asset. So an NFT is, is essentially a digitized asset. A lot of the popular examples this year have been virtual pieces of art or collectibles or videos or even music. That's made a lot of headlines because you've seen a lot of NFTs that are backed or supporting a digital piece of art go for millions, if not tens, and I think hundreds of millions of dollars, which is, is extraordinary. But in reality, these NFTs are they're not a new phenomenon. Artists have been certifying their work via the blockchain since 2015. And, and there's really a, a good reason. It's because NFTs, by being on a blockchain, you're, you're creating a, an immutable record of ownership. And so artists via the NFT can track and monetar, monetize their intellectual property. They can earn royalties on those assets. NFTs also function as a, a digital certificate of authenticity, which whenever you buy or sell art, as you know, proving ownership is paramount. If you can't prove what they call provenance, then that art worth artwork is essentially worthless. So for me, NFTs have the most appealing aspect within the blockchain world to date, because I think the staying power potential with respect to NFTs as they're applied to the art and collectibles world, I think there's a big market there and it's already been proven. As I said, it's, it's been around since 2015 and the art and collectibles world is a huge market. So I, I really like what they're doing in the NFT space. But those appealing features being a certificate of authenticity, being a you know, kind of a permanent record of ownership, you could apply that to other things that are contract-based. So they're not there yet, but you know, maybe one day we see NFTs that are backing the deed to a house, or maybe we see mm -hmm. patent creation where those patents are, that record of the patent is on an NFT, on that non-fungible token. So I think the opportunities there are, not endless, but there's certainly a lot of untapped markets where NFTs just, for me, make a lot of sense. Well, we, we will go ahead and wrap up with a 2022 forecast. And I think Adam and I are both laughing at that, if you could see us right now, because if you've listened to this podcast to this point, you understand the whole point of what we do is not having to forecast anything, is we believe that we prepare for things that are coming ahead. We're going to continue to balance the risks in the portfolio, whether it be a continued increase in inflation this year or in 2022, a continued rise in interest rates or, or a start to a rise in interest rates or a pullback in the equity market. We are going to have a place for everything in the portfolio over that time period. And so I am not going to indulge anyone with any type of economic forecasting or market forecasting. And I think it was actually John Galbraith that made the state that uh, you know economic forecasters lend credibility to astrologers. Uh, <laughs> I think was what the this I, I probably butchered that, but something along those lines is what it says. So, Adam, thanks for joining. Is there any final words you want to leave with everyone today? Well, if I had to make any forecasts, which, as you said, we are not in the business of making forecasts; we're in the business of creating portfolios to prepare for the unexpected. But you know, we, we talked about this a little bit in the Fed and the tapering. And so far, the Fed has performed in line with how the market is expected. 
And that's why you haven't seen what happened in 2013 and 2014 with what was called the taper tantrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big believer in reversion to mean. And so if history is in line with that and the Fed has performed so far in line with expectations, I think it's important to be prepared for the Fed doing something unexpected and maybe creating a little bit of a tantrum next year with either increasing interest rates a little bit faster than the market expects or ending QE faster than expected. We've already seen that so far in Q4 with the Fed stepping up their tapering. And now Mm -hmm. the market's expecting three interest rate hikes instead of two. And so the market's adjusted. And so far, the market's been in line with that. They've been expecting the Fed to step up their tapering. But I wouldn't bet on the Fed always being in line with what the market expects. So that, that's my prediction. My only other prediction, and I'm going to steal this from a, a famous basketball player of the Utah Jazz, Donovan Mitchell. He, he predicted the New York Mets will go 162-0. and 0. So I'm going to also, that, that'll be my prediction for the <laughs> A lifelong Mets fan. Very, very truly spoken, Adam. Well, I think, first of all, I want to thank all of the listeners of the podcast. I think it's been amazing to see the growth and the numbers of the people that are tuning into the podcast and listening. Receiving the emails from all of you has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your support and really the confirmation that we are bringing something different than you're hearing elsewhere, both here on the podcast and on the blog, Uncorrelated Mind. The writing that we do in in the conversations and the guests that we have on the podcast are really bringing a, a different listening and reading experience. And we appreciate that. Much more to come in 2022. I'm excited about some of the guests that we're starting to line up for 2022. And uh, more importantly, just thank all of you for your continued listenership. And uh, we look forward to bringing more great content here in 2022. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.cenaceracapital.com. Cenacera Capital LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cenacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor.